it's very interesting to observe the uh, different attitude to these things in Europe compared to the US. And I think we we definitely, ha- I mean, we in Europe have something to learn from you uh, because you are, I mean, you use base uh, in Europe, we use a lot of wheat. So we, it's an easy job for us to produce a good pellet quality. So we produce a good pellet quality, but it costs a lot of money because you need to reduce the throughput and all these things. Um, but uh, so I think we, what we can learn from you is actually to lower our shoulders a little bit on, on what we require uh, in terms of, of durability. Uh, um, and also it's interesting to observe that your philosophy of where you spend your energy in the feed mill is actually different from in Europe. A whole new era of communication in the feed mill industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global feed mill industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a feed mill, to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. Welcome to the Feed Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the global feed mill industry. Hello and welcome to the Feed Science Podcast. My name is Adam Farinholz and I'm here at North Carolina State University in the Prestige Department of Poultry Science and representing our feed mill program uh, here at the university. I'm joined today by a researcher from the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. I'm going to try real hard with the, the name here and uh, then I'll let him introduce himself and, and correct me on my pronunciation. Our, go- our guest today is Bielher, maybe, or Berger, is, as he said, we would tend to say in America, um, Zvihus, and uh, Berger is with the Norwegian University of Life Science in Norway. So with that, I will let you go and uh, introduce yourself, and then we'll have a bit of conversation about feed milling. Great. Thank you very much, Adam. It's uh, great being here. Uh, feed technology is uh, really something I've been working a lot with, uh, actually, since uh, I almost since I finished my PhD in poultry nutrition in 1997, actually that was the year where we uh, built the feed uh, experimental feed factory at my university, Norwegian University of Life Sciences. So I've been um, uh, kind of involved in feed technology, uh, primarily related to poultry, um, I have to say. But uh, I think that some of the things that I We've learned uh, this is applicable also across animal species. And I've also been responsible and taught a lot in the, in the master course we've had in feed technology. So uh, teaching the general topics of feed technology. So it's great to be here to talk about a very nice uh, and very interesting topic uh, where really there is, um, uh, I mean, there is a lot of exciting opportunities, I would say, to, to, to take the science even further yeah i absolutely i agree i i it's always really interesting to me as uh we do research you know and and we look at what's being done here in the united states and then we look and see what's being done in other parts of the world and especially what you guys are doing there in europe and seeing where things um where we kind of come together and we and we're working on similar things and then things because of our processes being different um, in some ways and in, in some of the goals and the ingredients being used and everything else and where we've gone off in different directions. I think that's always something that's uh, really interesting to see. And when we go and look at the literature or whatnot, see where some of those uh, similarities and some of those those differences are. Um, exactly. Because when, when I started, I mean, and uh, well, I think that I started teaching, I was taking responsibility for this master course in feed technology in 2003. And when I started, I was trying to, you know, read read the literature because it was a new field to me too, and and uh, I realized that, it's, I mean, as opposed to, for example, poultry nutrition, it's not really. I mean, there's not an enormous amount of research. Uh, I mean, the, the the amount of research and uh, research based uh, knowledge is not was not as large, at least, as in many other disciplines. So, uh, I had a lot of uh, uh, I. 
enjoyed very much to read this American book. Uh, and I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of the authors, but it was this fee technology, mm-hmm. the, the five volumes uh, or even six, I don't remember, the big uh, 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 bricks of uh, information that I read. I don't think I read it all, but I learned a lot from those books at least. But even even with those with those books, I still felt like I was uh, <laughs> I still felt it's a big challenge to teach free technology because of uh, a lot of uh, things was difficult to document or there were, it wasn't it was a lot of experience based knowledge right so there wasn't really any data behind the assumptions I would say um, so but uh, since then of course. Uh, there has been a lot of research and it's getting better and better. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about today, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. So uh, yeah, you're referring there to the, uh, the, the feed manufacturing technology. Uh, I think, I think you're right. I think the, the bound version, we ended up at five and I think that was published in like 2005 and the first one, which wasn't called feed manufacturing technology one, it was just feed manufacturing technology. I don't think they knew they were going to make four more. And I think that one was in the, the, late 70s 76 or something like that now it's kind of it's gone somewhat digital um that's been one of the projects been worked on over here but as you said there's just all this information and it's um the the feed milling becomes interesting right from the research side because we play this game of we hear all the time it, it, is it an art or is it a science and is you know is it a little bit of both and and i always kind of refer to it as you know, it's the parts that are in art are still in art because we haven't figured out the science yet. You know, exactly. I can, I can exactly. feel things in my feet or I can hear them. And that, that means that I know there's something to change or something to do. And that just, we just haven't measured it yet. Right. Exactly. A lot of it depends on experience and, and as you say, it becomes an art. And therefore I think it's so important that academics like us, we, we need to be out there, get dirty at the feed factories and, and you know, a, a talk with the people uh, that work there, learn from them, and and vice versa. Because uh, we, if we want to try to convince them of doing something, we need to be able to communicate with them also and and listen to them also. So it's kind of I think that really uh, when it's really getting interesting and fruitful is when when we manage to find a way of communicating and we have respect for each other's theoretical and practical competence and together are able to to take things further yeah uh, so I, and I really think there is uh, uh, room for for uh, adjustments and optimization in feed processing um, so so uh, I mean I, I as, as you know I, I've lately been working a lot with with uh, well actually I've, in fact a lot of the work I've done related to feed technology has really been uh, about structure, about diet structure. I mean, that has been my thing. And I mean, they really realize how narrow science is, but uh, that has been my research. It's been a lot about structure and a lot about poultry, particularly broilers. So when you when you say for those in the audience that that might not quite understand and what you mean when you say structure, what what are you referring to when you say the differences in structure in feed? Yeah, and that is actually where I have to start because I think that structure. I mean, I usually say that structure mainly is two things, and I divide structure uh, when we have a pelleted diet at least, or a, a shaped particle like a pellet or even an extruded particle. Structure structure of the diet has kind of two levels, I usually say, although you can even say it's three. But uh, the marker structure is, is really the, the particle size or the particle distribution of the pelleted material, right? Uh, which includes, the, I mean, of course, the diameter of the pellet, the length of the pellet, but also the unavoidable uh, 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 abrasion and, and a breakage of the particle into of the pellets into smaller particles. So you have the fines, you know, and the, and the parts here, broken down pellet particles. That is kind of all is, I call it macrostructure, because that's the structure as you can see it. But for the animal, that's not the structure. I mean, it's the structure that animal also sees. So it's very important, for example, feed intake, 
is important for, you know, homogeneous mixture and feed spillage and all these things. But then once the feed has been eaten and the pellet dissolves, and we know that it dissolves quite quickly, and and then uh, there's another level of structure which has been shown to be extremely important in poultry, and I call that the microstructure, uh, which is the particle size and distribution of particles that that the pellet is uh, composed of. So there you will, uh, that particle di- shape, that particle distribution will be affected by, you know, the grinding uh, types, uh, the, the seed screen size, the, whether you use a hand mill or a roller mill and all these things. And of course, the grinding takes place in the pellet press. But that's, that is then the microstructure. So those two things, um, I think uh, it's very important, as you say, that we stress what type of structure we're talking about, uh, at least for these two, because they are very different in what they do to the uh, to the value of the feed or to the to the value for the animal and the farmer. Yeah, so you know, it's it's interesting when we think again as you think about the, that macro structure and and when people look at the feed and especially in a pelleted feed or a crumbled feed or as you said, even if it was an extrudate. They look at it and they think, okay, that's what the animal consumes. But as you said, it, in any animal, there's going to be some sort of breakdown. And in, in you know, a monogastric, they're going to chew it. Swine are going to chew it up. Or in poultry, obviously, the gizzard's going to take it. We know what the gizzard can do. The gizzard can take a whole seed and break it down into nothing. So really, within a few seconds of that of that pellet being consumed, what the uh, what what that pellet looked like on the macro side is probably somewhat irrelevant but at the same time and you just mentioned something there i wanted to ask you to talk a little bit more about when we think about okay then after the the let's say let's use the chicken in this case after that broiler has consumed it now it's broken back down into what i know it was before based on how it was ground but what are we missing there with that idea of well we know how it was ground coming out of the roller mill and the pellet mill or out of the roller mill or the hammer mill but what may have happened in the hammer mill that we don't actually necessarily know the exact distribution because there's been another processing step that we haven't always thought about as being, quote, grinding, but almost certainly there is some. Exactly. Yeah, so so what, I mean, for the microstructure, I think that, uh, I, I know that the, uh, I've been able to convince Norwegian for, for feed uh, producers to do this, and I think it is growing interest uh, to actually try to uh, determine the particle, the microstructure of the diet by simply, uh, simple in principle, but not simple in praxis, but uh, to just dissolve the pellet and, and measure the particle distribution of the dissolved pellet. Uh, we use a wet sieving procedure, and that's also what the feed industry is using in Norway. Um, it's a laborious uh, procedure because you need to wash uh, the the dissolved uh, pellet uh, through a series of sieves. So it, it's kind of similar to the dry sieving, just that you need to wash it through. And then, you know, uh, when you're finished washing it through, and then there's the issue of flow and, and speed of water and all the things that you need to standardize to have a, a good standardized measurement. But then when, you, when you've done that, it's a wet material. So... You need also to dry it to get the particle, uh, uh, you know, the dry matter particle distribution, which is what you want to uh, to know about, uh, because you can't know if the water content is the same in all particle sizes. Uh, so it's uh, you know it takes time and it's laborious. But uh, what I usually recommend, uh, I mean, I, I, if you don't have the equipment, you don't have the equipment, and if if there's if there's nowhere to send it to get this done, and this of course is difficult. But but uh, the, I mean, if, if you have the equipment, you can't do it like as often as you do with, for example, pellet durability tests. But at least I would say, do it for your standard diet uh, with your standard pellet press and your standard grinding procedure. At least so you, so you know where where you are, because as you say, uh, I mean, it's it's not only about if you use a hand mill. It's not only about using death or that screen. And then you you know what the particle size of the pellets are. It's more complicated than that because you know it's uh, there's a lot of factors in the 
hammer mill and size of hammer mill, speed, all these things that will determine the grinding result. And then you have the pelleting process. Yeah. When when you started kind of going through that process, what did it look like as far as, you know, you, you, you mentioned, I kind of saw you chuckle when you said it, you've, you've convinced the folks in Norway, at least, to, to start thinking along those terms. What did that process look like trying to convince the industry to take on potentially another analytical test, another quality assurance measure. And boy, this one sounds complicated. Why do we do it? What what did that what did that conversation look like? Well, I mean, the most important thing is you have to convince them that it matters. I mean, that it matters for the economy and uh, production, right? I mean, that it matters for, for the birds. Uh, you know, I, I talk birds because it's birds I mainly work with, but... Uh, so you need to you need to you need to convince them this is important, and that uh, in poultry, uh, I think that uh, it is now. I mean, uh, uh, I mean the industry uh, at large is, to a large extent, convinced that uh, that it is important with some coarse uh, particles in the pellet, uh, actually to stimulate the gizzard, um, and uh, it's been. There's been so many publications in this area now, and it's been demonstrated again and again and again. The only question now is is not whether it is important. We know it is important with some structural material in the diet. The question is rather how much and what the size should be, and you know uh, what. And another important issue uh, is you know uh, how much do they compensate for lack of structure in the diet by eating, for example, litter. We know they eat litter, and we know they eat litter, actually eat more litter when there's less structure in the diet. So all these things, I mean, the, the practicalities of defining exactly where you should be is not that easy. And that is exactly what I have a project now together with the feed company in Norway, but it's still a research project, an applied research project. And we really try to now figure out what the structure should be, uh, both from a bird perspective, uh, from from a, a stimulating gizzard, maximizing the stability, and therefore feed efficiency as 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 good as possible, um, but also uh, from a feed technological point of view, because you know grinding coarsely saves you energy, and uh, this is. Europe been an extremely hot topic the last uh, year or two. Um, but, but it's, of course, important, uh, whatever the cost of energy is, because we our low energy consumption is a very important uh, I mean, success criteria for economic uh, feed production. And, um, and uh, so, so we, we think that if you can, if you, if you don't need to grind finally, you shouldn't. Even if there's no benefit, I mean, of grinding, I mean, even if, if there's no benefit, of course, grinding, obviously, if there's no benefit to fine grinding, you should not fine grind because it costs money. I mean, right? It's as simple as that. So we are, I mean, I, I, mean, I, can, I can tell you, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm just talking, you know, uh, but um, I, I, th- it, we, I think that uh, for poultry I mean this is all about stimulating the gizzard this is the stomach of the birds you know and it's important that there is a feed as a retention time there so the hydrochloric acid the pepsin can have time to work and when the gizzard is well functioning it's also an extremely efficient grinder a wet grinder producing extremely poor small particles actually uh, average size of uh, maybe 100 microns of the particles that pass from the gizzard into the duodenum. Um, but uh, it needs to be stimulated to work like that. And uh, I think that uh, if we want to do that with feed, and if particularly if we don't have fibrous cereals in the diet, because that also matters if you use barley or oats, for example, the, the hulls in those cereals will will do a lot of that job, stimulating the gizzard to to grind. And then you don't need to uh, particularly worry about that you're grinding too finely. So, 
But if yeah. she's a maize, if she's a maize diet, and which is after all, it's the king of uh, poultry diets at least or broiler diets. You should try to have a significant amount of particles, well, maize particles larger than two millimeter, uh, in the pellet. And that's and that's the that's kind of that big trick, right? And you, you mentioned it before. Of everybody now wants to know. Okay, we we know that it works. We know that the the larger the particle size, we stimulate the gizzard. We we we've learned that, as you said. Now, how much and and under what distribution? I think it's one of the really interesting things actually that's happened on discussion with particle size. In that, so when when I was in school we were first taught about particle size, we were taught about it from a, an actual, like a milling perspective, flour milling. We were looking at the history of flour milling. It used to have what was just called the modulus of uniformity. It was fine. It was medium. It was coarse. And then over time, as the different methods developed, and obviously we've been using sieving as as some manner of a method, and it's gotten better and better. And, and more or less, it's been kind of the same now um, for a number of decades as far as taking a sieve stack and, and creating a number. And we get this DGW number, this geometric mean diameter. Or if you really want to spend the money, you can run it through an actual visual testing and you know actually get an absolute knowledge. But on that sieve test, we've always talked about, you know, what's the DGW? And and especially on the broiler side, it seems like we're kind of actually going back in time to eh, I, I maybe I'm not as concerned as much about exactly what and how you're going to get to that that average particle size? Because you know, as as someone who's researched this and, and played around with it, you tell me you want 800 microns. Well, I can give you 30 different samples that will all end up coming out as 800 microns. That doesn't tell you enough if you don't actually know what the distribution is, and not just the SGW number, but what's the percentage above it this size, and what's the percentage below this size, and then. And then working with the feed mill, especially in a situation where maybe all they're grinding is for for broilers. If they're also grinding for some layers or some breeders and they're grinding coarsely, maybe they've got a stream over there they can use. Or if they're um, using holes and oats and things like that, maybe there's some, some fiber and some large particles over there. But man, if you're just hammer mill grinding fine corn as fast as you can to, uh, you know, to feed you know 800 micron 900 micron particle size to broilers and these large integrated facilities and then i say well i'd like to see a wider distribution it's it's like well we've we've designed all the equipment to not do that <laughs> well where do we go where do we go now so it's it's kind of fun to watch everybody almost have to go back in time and, and think about it in a different way yeah because because i think that uh, i mean personally i like to see the distribution of particles uh, in a sample, and you can get that. I mean, you can you can actually it. You can even say it's even simpler to make the particle distribution than to make the this complex uh, com use of complex equation to calculate the mean retention. I mean, mean particle size, uh, geographic uh, ge geometric particle size. Sorry, because uh, I really uh, as we talked about now. I, I mean, I think that I, I usually say, I, I, and I, I don't, I. I I try to, I mean, it's like if I have a gun to my head and I have to give common recommendation, my recommendation would be uh, maybe 20% of the particles should be larger than two millimeter in, in, the, in, the, in the pellet. Uh, but I don't know if it's right, but, uh, you know, you have to say something. And it seems to at least, at least I can say that when we have been running experiments with, with uh, microstructure, Measured, determined by wet sieving, uh, we figured out we have forty percent particles larger than one millimeter in the final diet, in the pellet, right? And uh, of those half are larger than two millimeter, we we know that the broiler chicken, fast growing broiler chicken, will perfectly be able to handle it. So I w at least we know that. So that's. But I I also have seen we've done experiment where we've been going quite high on coarse particles, uh, for example, using whole wheat and so forth. And there is a pain limit. Uh, so so uh, that's why I say uh, there, I, this is not the pain limit. Uh, but the pain limit is if you get too much coarse particles. 
because it's also a fact, you know, that the fines, they are the ones that cost money in the grinding process, right? I mean, the, the, the coarse two millimeter particles cost almost no, I mean, energy at all. Uh, but it's the fines, the, the small particles that kind of goes around, 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 around and don't get out of the hammer mill. Those are the ones that reduce your throughput and increases the, the energy uh, consumption and uh, makes the ground the ground material ground material hot right so uh, uh, therefore I, I think that uh, I mean equally important is to avoid a lot of very fine particles so that's on the other on the end of the scale right uh, but of course I don't know if you should kind of have I mean, I think there should be a distribution. <laughs> we shouldn't have like all the particles should be one millimeter, for example, uh, because I think that you need uh, a mix of, of smaller and larger particles to to glue this thing together to a pellet. Uh, but how much fines you need, I don't know. I think we don't need as much as we often have. That's my hypothesis, I would say. I was going to say, what have you guys seen as, as you've looked at this and, and you know, I, We've seen some things here, but I'm curious on your perspective, uh, especially since your processes and your ingredient forms are, are different than we often see in a U.S.-based diet. We always used to, the, and I remember, I remember very well when we really started looking at this coarse particle stuff was right when I was about in my master's, so kind of that that mid first decade of the 2000s, so like, and that's when it really started ramping up. Yeah, and the exactly. big concern, and the big concern was, yeah, but large particles you're going to kill your pellet quality you're just they're, they're going to fall apart you're going to have fines and i i don't know that it's exactly turned out that way how how have you guys seen that and and, and what have we learned about that you think exactly no i think that uh, well I, I i i've been going trying to go through the literature i mean there has been a, quite a few papers published where they have manipulated the particle size to made the made a made a pellet after a more coarse grinding, for example, in a hammer mill. And it's a, I was surprised when I did that uh, literature review when I realized that, in fact, in very many cases, you don't see any reduction in pellet durability, even if you produce a much, if you pellet a much coarser material. Sometimes you do, sometimes not. Uh, so um, at least uh, my view is that it's not as critical as we tend to think. I think it's been over uh, overemphasized that, that we should grind very finely in order to be able to use a good pellet. And also, I think that uh, you know, durability uh, that's another one of my my my, my things that I'm, I'm, I'm interested in. I think the way we define fines is also something we need to look at. I mean, yeah, remember that the old rule of thumb has, at least uh, for the Holman test, has been that you know, the sieve that will determine when the pellets have been have been disintegrated, right? Should be eighty percent of the diameter of the pellet, for example. That you that has been a rule of thumb, but very often I think we use a two millimeter sieve to kind of define everything smaller than two millimeter as fines, and. Uh, and then we have to uh, we have to kind of ask the animal, the bird, uh, what, what what is fine for the birds? I mean, what is fine? What is what is these fines that they don't like to eat? And I think that the, a two millimeter pellet is not fines in the in the eyes of uh, a broiler chicken, for example. Uh, so, and also I think that uh, when we have a coarser grind, we have to remember that we have a smaller amount of fines to start with, right? So when the pellet, if the pellet uh, uh, breaks apart, and even if it's uh, 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 abrasives, you know, uh, on, on the ends, I mean, the particles will not be as fine <laughs> because they're coarse to start with, right? So I mean, I think that something, there can be something there. And we actually, in this project I'm running right now, we are trying to, Actually, uh, we've been running some experiments. We actually tried to make a very poor pellet quality. I know you guys in the U.S. have done a lot of one beautiful uh, paper work on this, which I've really enjoyed reading uh, from uh, from uh, 
uh, from West Virginia, for example, and also uh, uh, several universities in the U.S. Uh, uh, that have done that. And uh, you see that uh, the tolerance for, for these fines is also perhaps not as dramatic. I mean, it's not as, it's not as bad as we tend to think. Uh, we, we, we try to reach like a pellet durability of 90, but when we have been running ex- experiments with diets with pellet durability of 70, we haven't seen any difference in feed intake compared to a 90. So, uh, and again, this is also about cost and the feed mill, right? Because the pelleting process, I mean, the energy we have to spend to, 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 to glue these particles together, at, particularly if we want to reach 90 as a pellet durability, I mean, we need to use lots of steam, right? And we maybe have to reduce the feeder rate. Uh, we have to use dyes that are thicker, for example. All these things is extremely costly in terms of energy, right? It's the most costly part of the whole of the whole process, of course. That may be fifty percent of the cost. So, so uh, even there, my my thinking is that uh, we shouldn't make the pellet better than uh, what the animal, what the body animals uh, desire or require. Yeah, and there's yeah, there's there's some really interesting. There's some as you mentioned, there's been some really interesting data that's come out over the years and and in some cases, and of course, as it is in the case of a lot of things on the feed milling or the feed science standpoint, one of the, one of the tricks is there's so many variables at play at all times. It, there's almost nothing that seems to be a, in it, this will work all of the time. There are a few things that we know that if, if we have a longer attention time of the conditioner and if we get better, more, these are these are good things. But there are other things where it's, oh, this works very well in this feed mill. Well, it doesn't work in this one over here. Why? Well, uh, slightly sure. different systems, slightly different ingredients, whatever. But as, as you point out, there, there seems to maybe be some interesting plateaus in there as to where the animals get better. And, and so when people... And, and I talk to people and they'll ask the question, I'm sure you get asked all the time, kind of what's next in feed manufacturing. And I always, I always kind of focus on two things. I say there will always be updates to equipment, but by and large, a hammer mill, a roller mill, a pellet mill, you know, they're, they're pretty well defined. We're going to get better at operating them. We're going to have new ways of controlling them, but it's going to be things that are related to collecting data, sensors, and things throughout the facility that we can never afford to do before. And now with internet of things and whatnot, we can do. And the other is going to be this idea of optimization. Because also, as you just pointed out, not only am I spending a lot of money potentially to in the energy cost to make this better pellet, but think of all the other things I'm trying to put in the feed now. Enzymes, probiotics, prebiotics. Well, they don't they don't like they don't like friction and they don't like temperature. And at what point did my better pellet end up making me have worse nutrition overall and getting everybody to kind of get on that same page as far as actually chasing optimization, not just chasing that that perfect that perfect pellet, which may not actually be in our best interest. Exactly. I, I think that, uh, I mean, uh, I was visiting uh, 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 Alabama in, uh, in, in May and uh, 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 hosted by the great uh, uh, colleague of, uh, of, of us in feed technology, Wilma Pacheco, and, and also with Samuel Wachell at Auburn University, they were very friendly and they were showing us around uh, at their university and also we visited feed plants and, and, and broiler facilities. And I, I knew this uh, from before, but I just wanted to see it. It's very interesting to observe the uh, different attitude to these things in Europe compared to the US. And I think we... We definitely, ha- I mean, we in Europe have something to learn from you uh, because you are, I mean, you use base uh, in Europe, we use a lot of wheat. So we, it's an easy job for us to produce a good pellet quality. So we produce a good pellet quality, but it costs a lot of money because you need to reduce the f- throughput and all these things. Um, but uh, so I think we, what we can learn from you is actually to lower our shoulders a little bit on, on what we require. Uh, in terms of durability. Uh, um, and also it's interesting to observe that your philosophy of 
where you spend your energy in the feed mill is actually different from in Europe. In Europe, in Europe, uh, as far as I know, and I think I know, but I, I can't be wrong, there can't be exceptions, but in Europe, uh, they use uh, thick dyes uh, with, a, with a diameter to length ratio of uh, 1 to 18 or 17, 1 to 17, 1 to 18. So, and they use three millimeter pellets often. So, I mean, they're thin and they're long holes and you're, and it's a wheat-based diet. So you really need to use a lot of energy to push these things through the dye. But what they do is they use a low conditioning temperature, maybe just 75 degrees. So uh, and the temperature increases in the, in the pelting process to 85. Uh, in the US, it's the opposite. You you condition at least from my experience and what I've been told, uh, you maybe get up to 88 uh, or something like that in conditioning temperature, and you use a thin dye, and there's no temperature increase in the pelting process. I I I I I wonder who is right. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, man, actually, I, I as as always, maybe the truth is somewhere in between. But uh, but I think definitely I think in Europe we are using two thick dyes. I think I, I think that and, and you know it it I, I, so that is one of the things we have been looking into and uh, we will continue to look into uh, to use a thinner dye, uh, maybe get down to one to twelve. I mean, uh, uh, which is still uh, maybe around what, where you are, guys, but. Uh, uh, and and uh, then uh, increase the conditioning temperature uh, somewhat and uh, see if we maybe can save energy in the processing by doing that and increasing capacity and having the same durability. Yeah, yeah. I was. It, it reminds me of I, I took a, a trip. I was doing some work up in up in Canada, and it was in a swine feed mill in Canada, and they were having trouble with a specific medication, uh, and and it. it it was an antibiotic and it wasn't a chemical antibiotic. So it, you know, it was going to be maybe a little more effective by processing. Although generally we don't see a huge amount of impact there. Like we might with an enzyme or something. And we were in a mill and they said, so they're really having some trouble and it's in there after the mixer, but after the pellet mill, it, it's, it's just not there. And said, well, let's go take a look. And I, I found very quickly that they, they were running an expander. So they were running a decent conditioning. They're running the expander and then they were still running it through a dye that was like you said, it's about an 18 to one. And I thought to myself, I'm, I'm surprised anything that's thermolabile is living, is living through this. I mean, it's just the amount of, of just absolute, you know, pressure and, and temperature. But on the, on the flip side, as, as you say, you know, when we look at it here, one of the ways that I've always thought the optimization question is is interesting is let's say across the broiler companies in the US, we've always had some that really focus on something like pellet quality and not having fines. And they will run a thicker diet to an extent if they need to, not, not to the European specifications, but much more than others. And then we'll have others that if it went through the pellet mill, it counts as pelleted feed. Like, you know, it, good, good enough. And, and you know what? Both of these companies are profitable, and exactly. and, both, and so that really tells you no, there is not one right way to do this. Or, or to your point, if there is a right way, it's probably somewhere in between those two. And trying to find, I think that's going to be our challenge over the next, you know, however long we try to chase it, is figuring out, especially on this grinding, pelleting ingredient what's optimum and how do we define optimum and then get everybody to understand that optimum for you does not mean optimum to you. And your equation is going to be different than yours because you formulate yeah. different or your equipment is older or whatever the case may be. Exactly. As always, it, I mean, uh, it's a compromise of uh, conflicting interests. And um, even if you have a very poor pellet quality and you have, as a consequence of that, uh, slightly slower growth, I mean, it may still be a prof may still be the best solution. For example, since it will perhaps reduce mortality in the flock because they're growing a little bit more slowly, uh, and you save energy and, and and effort in the pelting process, so that you don't spend so much energy there. So uh, it, it 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 can be the right thing. Yeah, but uh, if you if you I mean 
in other situations. I mean, uh, labor is expensive. Uh, houses are expensive, for example. You need to utilize it, the houses more efficiently and there is not a mortality issue. Then uh, maybe it will pay off to produce a better pillar quality. I mean, it's all is is a matter of 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 uh, doing the math, right? Yeah, and yep. and uh, and that also leads me to something very important. When you say what is the future, and the future is more data, as you say. Yeah, I mean, with data of the process. When I'm working with this company now, uh, they're very good people. They're really interested. They're willing to make changes. They are very much into this. But I'm surprised by the. Uh, that they don't—they're not logging, for example, the energy consumption uh, from uh, the different parts of the process. I mean, what we should do is, for example, to have all these data real time, all the time, so we could connect, for example, durability to the energy consumption of the pellet press and whatever. I mean, the conditioner and all these things, and also when we're going to optimize these things. For example, when when we now, when I'm now together with this feed company. I'm going to try to find a, a different, uh, 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 different process with, for example, an increased uh, conditioning temperature and a thinner dye. I need those data. We need to see what the energy, how much energy, less energy are you using in the pelting process and how much more are you using in the conditioning in order to figure out if this is an uh, energetically more effective way, right? Yep. So yep. To, to, to data, data is... Um, and they're coming because you know uh, everything now can be connected in a totally different way and be analyzed in a totally different way. Uh, uh, so we have far more opportunities, and I think those that are quickest to grab those opportunities, they will, they will have, they will gain a lot from that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree. gathering I think... and using it, and, and using it systematically, analyzing them, and, and look at the, at the uh, connect that to physical quality of the pellet and even you know the performance i mean of the birds right so you have all these things connected and you can realize where where there is a bottleneck where you can make savings yeah i i think i think that using part of it is is such a big deal from the standpoint i i, I always go in and look at and, and i'd imagine it's the it's the same in, in europe most of the modern automation systems already have the ability if the sensors and the things are there to collect the data but even on even on things that aren't sensors there are all kinds of things with statistical process control that these these systems can capture as to well how optimized the system is maybe just in efficiency not even in energy or something like that and the the vast majority of of people don't use that data or the amount of times that they're, you know, well, we're checking pellet durability, we're, we're checking particle size. And what do you do with that? Well, it goes on this spreadsheet and it sits in this file and we make sure that, that someone doesn't yell at me because it's out of spec. Well, but have you ever tied it back into this over here? Oh no, we're not doing, we're not doing any of that. So there's already a huge opportunity with the data we already have, much yes. less what we could collect in some day. It's just convincing people to not only spend the money on it's a pun not intended it's it's that chicken or the egg of we need to collect it and we need to invest in the ability to collect it and analyzing it to see where it can and well and someone's always going to want to know well can i make money off of that and the answer is well i don't know yet i, I imagine so but I, I can't tell you yet until you actually give me the data to play with right yeah i mean but i mean uh, the example i'm mentioning is one very concrete example where we actually need those data to actually answer the question: what, what, what is more, what, what is most energy efficient? To uh, spend your energy in, in 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 steam, or to spend your energy in running the engines in the pellet press? And then, of course, that is only the energy part of it. But then, of course, the effects on the diet and all these things is a different question. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, one, another thing when we talk about, I mean, we talk, I, I talked about wet saving as something I think would be useful at least in poultry feed production. Uh, another thing that I, I am surprised that is not always measured uh, is the post pellet temperature. I mean, the, 
the temperature of the pellet immediately as it comes out of the pellet press. And I, I also, that's also what I always say, measure, I mean, again, not continuously or, and it's difficult and it's difficult to standardize this procedure. I mean, uh, but uh, I, I mean, the simplest way it can be done, as long as you do the same all the time, it's okay. But for example, collecting a couple of kilo in a styrofoam box with a lid on and put a probe in through the styrofoam into the center of this and wait till the temperature stabilizes. If you do that, if you do it a standardized way, you will learn something that is very important. Uh, uh, you know, whether temperature has increased during the pelting process, whether it's stayed the same as the conditioning temperature. Because conditioning temperature, people usually have an idea about. But uh, at, at the end result, uh, and it's also very strongly connected to pellet durability in my experience. I mean, uh, if you want high durability with a, one particular type of composition of the diet, I mean, uh, it's been going to be very much linked to the post pellet temperature. Yep. I mean, the yeah, higher we, that is, the higher the durability is. Yeah, we... So, uh, two PhD students ago, uh, my my PhD student, uh, JT Pope, he did a, a bunch of work looking at thermostability of, of products as they move through and, and not really any particular product, but just using various enzyme types as as markers to test. And we found some really interesting data that really hadn't ever been looked at before of it's it's it really is all happening in the pellet dye, right? Most of most of the in the conditioning absolutely plays a role. But if I if I collect a sample and coming out of the conditioner, I'll still have most of my heat labile enzyme probiotic, whatever. Most of it in most cases is still it's still there. It's once it goes through that pellet dye and it gets that hot under that much pressure that it's that it's gone. And so it's really, okay, we've always just looked at for a very long time. It's just some big piece of steel that not really much is happening. And I think that's probably been a mistake. I think there is a huge amount happening. My just finished PhD student, part of her work, she did a lot of that post uh, pellet temperature monitoring work, looking at the different methods of collecting it. And we have tried a few things to actually do it continuously. Um, that's not, uh, it's a very good experience for her as a, as a PhD student, um, running the experiments and trying to find a way we don't have a way yet. Um, but it's, uh, it's been a fun experiment to try to find out because it's just, I, I agree with you. I think it's a, it's potentially a lost data point that if we could figure out how to look at it, it, it could be just as important to try to set that as it could be to try to set conditioning temperature by changing a dye or improving throughput or decreasing throughput or changing conditioning, whatever the case exactly. may be. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, uh, uh, the technical side of it is one thing, but as you say, uh, the very close relationship between uh, max temperature in the process and uh, you know, survivability of uh, whatever I mean, enzymes or, or, or probiotics you're having in there is, is also a very important topic. And then the chemical changes to vitamins, for example, and all these things. So, so to keep uh, to keep an eye on what has been the max temperature, uh, and particularly the temperature after the pelting process, I think it's uh, very important. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, I, I think we could. I'm, I'm sitting here thinking of we of, of some. Uh, it, it. I think it'd be very interesting at some point to get a, a, a group of folks together, if nothing else, to have a discussion about differences between the way feed is made in Europe and the way it's made in the U S and then potentially other parts of the country, other parts of the world rather as well. I think there are not very many people that, that do a significant amount in the feed mill specifically in that many different places. And I know when I've come over to Europe and, and, and spoken, you know, I've run into other folks and it's kind of, they kind of look at me funny with, well, that's not a very, technical or advanced way of making feed and then the u.s side we look at europe and go well that that's a very that's a very advanced and very technical but you're sure aren't making very much your production rates are very i've had people come and ask me so on on when you're measuring pellet derby, so what are your normal pellet hardness and i say I, we have no idea nobody in this country measures that ever and they look at me like how how can that be we measure pellet hardness all the time i think it's really interesting what those differences are and what we found valuable 
um, and why we found things valuable and, and then what's real there and maybe what's not the, between the two. There's probably a lot to learn there. Yeah, well, well I, I, I am, my hypothesis is that we are overdoing it in Europe. I mean, uh, we, we, uh, we, we, I mean, I, there is something called feet flicking. I don't know if you've heard about it uh, in chickens. And uh, I've seen it, and uh, and nobody really knows what it is. But it, but it's we I think, and many people think. Uh, but it's unfortunately it's, it's one of those many things that people think, but nobody's even studied it systematically. But it's actually a too hard pellet. Uh, so the birds, and you know the birds, they don't want it. I mean, they are. It's simply too hard, particularly for rather young pellets, uh, young young broilers. You know that it it is simply too hard. You can you can see it sometimes. You know the feed is almost like a glassy surface on the pellet, and and that's a, a situation which sometimes happens in Europe because of this extreme focus on a pellet durability above ninety, that there really shouldn't be any significant amount of fines in the feeder. So so. Uh, I, I think that uh, that 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 and, and and you know the research that we've been just recently carried out certainly confirms this uh, that we we don't need to have this. It's it's a waste of energy, and at worst case, it's something that makes a lot of harm. I mean, one thing is feed flicking because it's, it could be a big problem, and it of course reduces the feed efficiency, but also uh, you know the enzyme efficacy at these things that uh, to a high temperature can 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 uh, affect it can have on the nutritional quality of the feed is also a very big issue. But the other thing I wanted to, uh, uh, I mean, I don't know. I I think we almost talked for an hour now. So you decide how much further we get. But I could just mention um, another thing because now we we well we've been talking about both micro and macro structure, which is basically what we talking about and uh, microstructure of course grinding and all these things uh, which saves money and is better for the digestive function of the birds uh, but the microstructure apart from the durability issue um, we are, we are, actually the company that I'm working with they have now switched to using a 5 millimeter diameter of the broiler pellets and that's another thing that we was a very big surprise for us when we actually carried out experiments to see what type of particles broilers prefer. And we realized that at least from, I mean, after three weeks of age, they prefer five millimeter pellet before uh, smaller pellets. Um, and that's another thing that, you know, will save you a lot of energy in the pelleting process to use a, a bigger diameter and uh, it will also conserve the coarse particles in a better way. So uh, that it will be less grinding in the pellet press. So we are now looking into the, uh, to this issue of actually using a switch to a 5 millimeter pellet. I know there's another difference between the US and, and Europe. But Europe is very common. Most common is 3 or 3.5 millimeter pellet for broilers. Uh, the U.S. it's more common with four, even four and four point five. So, uh, so, so we we we've taken your principle, but even further, going up to five millimeter. Yeah, it's 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 interesting from the perspective of, and I I know exactly where you're you're coming from from the idea of. You would think as long as as we have been making feed and pelleted feed for it's well, certainly someone has done lots and lots of research on all the different pellet diameters and how they affect. And then you go try to find it and you find out actually, no, we've, we've, yes. we've really, we've really not done that work. You know, there's a few things here and there, but nothing that you can bring together and have a full picture. It doesn't exist. Exactly. And then, you know, there is some literature and, and I th think I've managed to find it all and it's very good literature. I mean, solid experiments and so forth but first of all it's like in the 80s for example the broiled chicken was different in the 80s than it is now and secondly you know uh, there's always uh, ways i mean uh, it's always the the ways you do experiments and what particle sizes you actually used so in fact this is 
my also my experience that nobody really knows what the preference of the birds is in terms of particle size. At least we don't know. Well, not we don't even know the preference. I mean, uh, there's far too few preference experiments carried out, which they're not very complicated to carry out. I mean, they're not very costly either. So it's just that people have assumed that. Yeah, I mean that. It's been like, like a tradition almost. Like, okay, we use uh, three three millimeter and uh, and uh, and and then they stick to it. Uh, but it's also costing a lot of money to use a very thin uh, a hole in the die, right? So um, so uh, we we have been doing uh, a lot of experiments. We actually even did a five millimeter pellet on f- was it five or six day old broiler chickens. And and you know uh, we 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 gave them uh, 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 you know it was a, like a, a row of uh, uh, different compartments four different compartments for different particle sizes uh, larger than four point seventy five and then what was it four point seventy five to two point eight two point eight to one point six and below one point six and six or five or six I don't remember day old chickens. They still, I mean, they ate less of the five millimeter pellets, but uh, maybe twenty percent less. But uh, still, they ate a lot of it. I mean, it's not like they can't eat it. So um, there's, there's also a very big surprise uh, that they really, they really seem to uh, prefer larger particles, or at least be able to handle large particles, larger particles than we thought. So that is. Uh, simple thing really and very basic thing but we have to remember this is why we pellet we pellet to facilitate feed intake and i mean so i definitely we need to look into what what which particle size the the, whatever animal we're dealing with but in in birds particularly important because they pick one and one you know so uh, we need to definitely in in poultry nutrition learn about what type of particles they prefer and what type of particles they can handle. I mean, even if they don't prefer them. Yeah. And, and as you mentioned, I mean, that's, that's all, those are all things then that end up helping out the feed mill in some way too, right? Where it's, 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 Hey, the birds can take this. And by the way, I just saved you 10% energy cost. And I've, I've I made your die last. I made your die last another hundred thousand tons or something because it's got nowhere near the amount of back pressure and friction that it had before, and uh, yeah. how all those things just just add up. Yeah, they're so happy yep. now. The feed mill they've switched to five millimeter pellets, uh, as I told you. And uh, the you know the manager of the feed mill is uh, I mean I'm the hero, you know, because it's so much easier to get the feed through a five millimeter die. Then a three millimeter die or a four millimeter die, and, uh, and and we even made we even made pellets. For example, we we wanted to test this idea that they could handle five millimeter diameter pellets. We made them, uh, you know, the the one that we thought would be able to use was a five millimeter diameter, six millimeter long pellet. Uh, of course, we measured these things and we were able to produce this and the same durability between the diets. But to just to to see where the pain limit was, we also produced a five millimeter pellet that was ten millimeter long. So and it's really a big chunk of feed. I mean, and we fed this to broilers from ten days of age, and you know we we just included that to to see that there is a actually a limit. But in fact, no effect. I mean, they grew. Just they grew exactly like they did with the three millimeter pellet and a five millimeter pellet with six millimeter length. They actually were able to cope with it, which was uh, uh, another big surprise. I mean, uh, uh, and, and we had, I mean, this diet was a high durability uh, pellet with very little fine, so it wasn't like they could just avoid to eat the large particles. They had to eat large particles. They had to eat the large particles, and they did from ten days of age. Amazing. I mean, uh, all stuff that people would have, you know, said, "No, nah, they, they, they can't. They'll choke. They'll, you know, the gizzard will get yeah, impacted." Yeah, we, we that, said that it won't, too. It won't work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Absolutely. it was really interesting, and 
And but I think that uh, you know, in this, uh, you know, when you start thinking about these things, you know, you realize that hey, wait a moment, a, a, a ten-day-old boiler chicken, I mean, uh, is a much more active than a thirty-days-old boiler chicken. So it it can stand up, it can eat longer, it has the will, I mean, the desire to eat longer, and also, uh, uh, you know, it's it's uh, it, there's more space around the feeders. I mean, that's at space. There's all these also management things that you need to start thinking about. And then you realize the 10-day-old boiler, there's no limitation of space. It it can stand for longer. So even if it uses more time, and we showed that it actually was using more time eating, we also measured that. But it doesn't matter because it has the time uh, to, to eat more. It, and so it can do it. But when it gets to 30 days of age, they are heavy. They don't. They don't want to stand up for a long time, uh, you know. So and there is a limitation for space. So uh, then it's a uh, it's a different uh, question. So, and we think this is the explanation. That it works so well. Interesting. It's time for our famous three. Well, Berger, I think I, I think you and I could probably talk about seed milling <laughs> and seeding for. Forever and, and honestly, I, yeah, I, I, we I think we need. Yeah, I think Not we do. Today. I think we need. I think we need to uh, to set up some some opportunities for you know some of us to get together and like I said, talk about what's what's the same and what's not, and where's the data missing and all that sort of thing. But I'm not sure if everybody else wants to hear all those conversations or not. Uh, maybe we'll record them for them, and maybe we won't. Um, you know, keep some of the secrets to ourselves. But before we uh, before we finish it out. Um, the few questions. So the these these series of podcasts uh, have one of the things on the poultry and on the swine side that have become a, a part of it is always asking kind of a series of questions there at the end of getting you know things that might be beneficial to folks. So the the first question is, do you have a resource on the the feed side, uh, feed milling, nutrition, whatever it might be? Uh, that is a book or a resource, something that you found incredibly valuable that you would want to make sure that others would know about it as they're wanting to learn about uh, you know, this particular realm. Well, I already mentioned this uh, classical work from the U.S. Uh, this big uh, series of uh, of the handbook feed technology handbook, which is really useful. But it's 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 been some years since it's been updated. And, uh, mm -hmm. um, so actually, there is a lack of uh, good literature uh i am actually writing a couple of chapters in a book that's supposed to come out soon uh that is uh, initiative from farming university uh hopefully that will be a good book but uh it, it isn't finished yet uh there's also a palleting handbook uh that uh, that the holman uh the company that produced the holman durability uh, it's also useful um uh, apart apart from that, um, I I um, I don't have um, so many uh, um, uh, good recommendations on the on this. I agree. That's um, it, it. Finding those those. I think I think in our world on the feed side, resources end up being really heavily skewed towards people and and a lot less towards literature. Um, I think that's just kind of you know we we learn a lot from from others in in a lot of ways and then go get you know, the technical works and things where they are, but a, a lot of the rest of it is, is kind of learned by word of mouth, at least for now. The, um, the next question would be, how about outside of that realm of, of feed milling or nutrition, things related to management or, or leadership or, or anything that you found really interesting that, that you think would be really great if everybody, you know, read this or, or went and watched that or something along those lines. Well, to me, I mean, I'm an academic, first of all, and uh, uh, what I really uh, think that is extremely important is to keep an eye on the scientific publications in the area of feed technology. Um, where I, I use with my area of mainly focusing on poultry nutrition um, and feed technology. There, I find that the Journal of Applied Poultry Research. Uh, run by the Poultry Science Association. It's, it's a really good journal that I publish a lot of very good work on feed technology related things, poultry, nutrition. Um, so uh, 
uh, yeah, that would be my uh, my main uh, source of information. Of course, attending conferences and so forth. But when it comes to to again to, with to the my kind of books, uh, I I don't really have. Uh, I don't really know uh, uh, of any particular source I would mention specifically related to uh, to 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 this area. I mean, to to relevance for for the audience here. Gotcha. So then the the last question then is, what are some of the things that you found that as you go through kind of the the world of of feed milling and, and it could be on the academic side and the research side. It's certainly also maybe just thinking about when you're out in the field and working with these companies, what are the characteristics that you find that set the most successful people that you run across? What what is it that sets them apart, you think, from from the others? Well, I think it uh, willingness to to uh, to try new things or to I mean the, the ability to ask questions. I mean to question things and to be you know like these critical questions. You know why are we doing this? Uh, can we do it better? And uh, what about if we try this? I mean, uh, uh, I mean, I, I know it's difficult because you know most feed mills they run twenty four seven, and uh, you know I, I, the the amount of feed they're producing is increasing all the time. So it's a very stressful situation. But uh, you know those people that find the time to get on top of things and actually. Uh, then start to look at how we can improve things, do things in a smarter way, more efficient way. Uh, that can, uh, you know, as we talked about the data, the importance of gathering data and analyzing data. Those who have uh, the curiosity and the mind to to try to look into these things and do it better. Um, I think that is a very important success uh, factor. Of course, uh, competence among the people that run the feed plant is important but uh, just as important is the interest in actually uh, in actually in, in, you know trying to do things better and I think that uh, those who have this or do this they 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 are much rewarded for I mean it, it makes their it, ma- it makes their work interesting right I mean it, it is rewarding to to do improvements that uh, will benefit all. I agree hundred percent. I think, I think that curiosity is, is a huge part. I, I, I say all the time when I go into facilities and I'll find maybe a, a pellet mill operator that, that likes to play with their machine. And, and, and this person wants to see if they can make it run faster or make it run better. And, and I'll tell their management every time, don't, don't ever let that person go. Because instead of just being here to make make feed, they're they're trying to figure out where the boundary jars and they want to play with with it, and that's that's so incredibly valuable, I, I think. And I think that's yeah, a great, it is. It's a great I mean, point. That's where we're at, how we move forward, right? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Well, I have very much enjoyed our conversation. It will it will definitely not be our last. We will find other ways to to have conversations in the future, whether it be part of a podcast or webinar or recording or. I'll find my way over over there someday. Um, yeah, and, well, well, surely come, we'll see around. Like, find Absolutely. time to meet. So I've I've really enjoyed it. My uh, so thank you very much. Uh, my guest once again today on the female podcast has been Doctor Svius from the Norwegian uh, University of Life Sciences. I'm Adam Farnols with the Preston Department of Poultry Science and the Feed Milling Program here at NC State. Thanks a lot for joining us and hanging out for a little over an hour. I hope you all found that conversation as interesting and as enjoyable as I did. We'll see everybody the next time.